every weekend for 13 years, a 48-year-old Chinese man named Chen Si would ride an electronic scooter for approximately 20 kilometers. That's about 12.4 miles from his home to China's most frequented suicide spot, the Nanjing Yatsi River Bridge. From 2003 to around 2016, Chen Si is said to have saved 321 lives, many of whom were desperate migrants who saw no future in the city and was too ashamed to go back to their hometowns. Every weekend, he would spend up to eight hours a day pleading with people to not end their lives and then, when possible, direct them to counselors at a nearby university. Additionally, he went on one step further and would rent out a two-bedroom flat so that those who were in need could have a place to stay after he had convinced them not to end their life on that bridge. One man made a huge difference in many people's lives. One man committed to a particular cause in a particular place turned the course of many people's lives in a new course of direction. One man's heart of compassion and selfless love for these hurting and aimless people prevented hundreds of men and women from sadly ending their lives. Though I don't know the spiritual beliefs of Chen Si, I think most of us would admire the courage and care that it takes to invest years of your life to help those who are in desperate need, to show by your own voluntary initiative a sacrificial love to others that is quite inspiring. It's virtuous. We might even call it heroic. We all enjoy stories like these, don't we? I mean, Blockbuster has sold so many movies and the box office over stories like that, stories that involve sacrifice and service for the good of others, the drama of good versus evil, the strong helping the weak, the rich helping the poor, the hero stooping down to rescue the outcast and disenfranchise and making them his friend. And what about the stories of justice finally being carried out? Those people who have been taken advantage of are finally vindicated. Those in authority finally do what is right for the wrongs that have been overlooked and avoided for quite some time. I think we have to agree that Chen Si, regardless if he's a Christian or not, he shows by his actions that his care for others, at least for those 13 years, exceeded his desire to keep to himself and do nothing for others. Chen Si certainly therefore serves for us this morning an example, at least one example, of what mercy and love and a courageous and committed care for others looks like. But aside from persuading people to rethink ending their lives like Chen Si did, are there other ways that love is demonstrated in everyday life? I mean, practically speaking, let's get real. What does a life of love 
actually look like? We would say that people love the things they spend the most time doing or spend the most time talking about. What would people say about the objects of our love then? Or the ways we love that are clearly evident in our lives? You know, we all tend to throw a word, that word love, to little to no effort, right? We say things like, I love football. I love chocolate cake. I love my car. I love my house. I love my dog. I love my cat. I love my new sleep number bed. And I venture to say that many of us would say that we love our families too. But what does love look like? What does love audibly and visually look like in the life of a person who says they love the God of the Bible? A person who recognizes they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Someone who professes to be a Christian. Someone who professes to give their whole life to one ambition. I want to obey Jesus and look like him. Friends, if we say we love, not like, not admire, not look up to, love the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of love, how will that reshape and redefine our love for one another? Jesus said in John 12, Verses 25 to 26, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Uh, Jesus is teaching here that love for God and esteeming God's priorities must exceed a love for self-preservation and selfish living. In order to truly follow the Lord Jesus, to serve him, as we just read in John 12, to serve the king of glory, the king of love, who humbled himself by becoming a man to serve his heavenly father. A death blow, a death blow must occur to our self-centeredness, our pride must die. A denying of oneself as king of our own life, a transfer of power of the throne of our own hearts must occur. This dethronement is not an impeachment, but this dethronement is when we realize our utter worthlessness to stand in the presence of God unless God have mercy. This dethronement of our pride and self-reliance must take place if if any of us want to offer worship that is pleasing to God. You see, it's not simply, no offense to Carrie Underwood, 
We give Jesus the wheel to the car to get us to the next place. Like we got lost and we need Jesus to kind of help us out. No, we don't need Jesus to take the wheel from us. We need to give Jesus the keys to the car. He doesn't want a part of your life. He doesn't want the next step of your life. By God's grace, he owns your life. Friends, when you and I come to faith in Christ, we have to begin to understand that our lives are no longer our own. Our lives are now all about him and what he wants to do with our life because he purchased it with his own blood. You see, the funeral must take place where life about me goes to die and the birthing room of new life with Christ. Friends, this is the story of every person who's ever become a Christian. This is what happens when God regenerates a sinner's heart. This is real Christian conversion. This is fundamentally what happens. You take an unbeliever, a lost person, a good citizen that's dead on the inside, and you take a citizen of the same country who's been born again, what is the significant difference? And it is this, when you place your faith in Christ alone, he forgives you of all your sins, but he delivers you from the shackles of living merely for yourself. He delivers us from us being our own master and gives us chains of freedom to serve a good master. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We go from boasting of our own righteousness or our own good works, and then we bow before God, pleading for his mercy with broken and contrite spirits. And we cling to the righteousness, the good fruit, the good works of Christ alone. See, this is the great exchange where Christ took on our filthy rags of sin at the cross. And by faith, we receive Christ's pure and perfect righteousness of his obedient life. This is when our identity changes. This is where our purpose in life changes. Friends, you don't need to read the purpose-driven life. The gospel gives you purpose in this life, and that is all you and I will ever need. You see, we go from worshiping the God of me, myself, and I to worshiping the triune God of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Like a waterfall, greater than Niagara Falls, being poured out into a tiny dry cup, the Holy Spirit pours into us the love of God. Romans 5.5, 5. and beloved, we are never the same. Again, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What happens in the heart of someone who was once hostile and disobedient and arrogant before God when God gets a hold of their heart? What happens? We begin to love God and hate our sin. We begin to love God's word and we grieve when we disobey his commandments. 
We begin to love seeing God glorified. And we become dissatisfied and even angry when he isn't. We begin to love God's people, the church, when before we either despised her, ignored her, or isolated ourselves from her altogether. Friends, when our loves change, because of God's love changing our loves. Friends, it's all not, you know, roses after that. This newness of life is eventually going to hit some crossroads. It eventually gets tested. You see, if you begin to follow the king of love, sooner or later you're going to follow the crossroads that he went before us as well. Our love for God will get tested as God brings us through fiery trials to show us what's really going on inside our hearts. Though we're no longer enslaved people pleasers, the temptation to fear man over God is still there. Though you're no longer a lost sheep without a shepherd, our hearts are still prone to wander. Our hearts are still prone to wander, to leave the God we love. At different points along the way, every Christian, I don't care how many initials a man has next to his name, Every Christian, every professing Christian will be challenged on whether or not we will walk away from following Jesus or we will echo the words of the Apostle Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, Jesus' call for us to deny ourselves, carry our cross, and follow Him, it ultimately means our chief ambition in life, it changes. Instead of having ambitions aimed ultimately at fulfilling our glory and fulfilling our goals and fulfilling our agendas, our targets in life change. Everything all of a sudden becomes an opportunity to glorify God. We get married. Now my marriage is this aim to glorify God with my marriage. We work in our jobs with the aim, with the target to honor the Lord and share with others and point others to Christ. We raise our kids with the aim that we teach them that God is most glorified through us when we are most satisfied in him. And beloved, we join local churches with the aim of contributing to the building up of the saints so that God is glorified and that King Jesus is truly worshipped among his people. You see, in following Jesus, our ambitions don't go away, but our ambitions do get rescued. You see, our ambitions become increasingly purified to please God with increasing fervency as we lay aside all the sin and distractions and selfish ambitions that can ensnare us. At the heart of the Christian faith, the most significant thing that changes about us is our heart's attitude about God and about his church. Let me say that again, because that is a thesis for this, this talk. At the very heart of the Christian faith, the most significant thing that changes about us 
is our heart's attitude towards God and his church changes. Instead of people becoming big and God remaining small, God becomes big and people become small. Now, that doesn't mean that people are irrelevant or unimportant to our lives. It's actually quite the opposite. We find that we can actually love others best when we put God first and love him the most. We find that we can actually love others best when we put God first and love him the most. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, listen to this, loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God. Follow his logic. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Listen, if you're not a Christian here today, I want to be crystal clear with you this morning of what this actually means. Following Jesus is not simply a one-time decision when you repeat a prayer or when you get baptized. It may begin at those moments in time. But if you are truly following Jesus you will stay with Jesus for a lifetime. Let me say that again. I find that super simple to understand, but it is commonly overlooked and underestimated, and it shows up in bad teaching starting with little kids. I want to say it again. Following Jesus is not simply a one-time decision where you repeated a prayer or you were baptized. It may begin at those moments. But if you are truly his, you will stay with him for a lifetime. Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, there is no other place we'd rather you be. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't say, well, I'll get to that when I'm older. No, you won't. Come to Christ today. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. You're not going to be loved better by anyone else on this planet than God. So realize that God has shown his love to you and to me by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life that we fail at. Yesterday, we fail out today, we fail out tomorrow, but Jesus didn't. He fulfilled God's law, and he died in our place, bearing the penalty of our sin that we deserve. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. Friends, that's the good news, that God can accept us. God can adopt us. God can receive us as we are because of the merits of Jesus Christ for us. That's the good news. Believe that for yourself today and never look back ever again. You see, God's grace is the most amazing gift you'll never fully comprehend, and it's the one thing you and I must need. And yet... This free gift will cost you and I everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew this very well. He once said this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. 
It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus, it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, the death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. You see, a love for Jesus then, God's beloved son, must exceed the best this life has to offer. As God's love through Jesus penetrates our stubborn and sinful hearts, a supernatural heart transplant takes place. When we become servants of King Jesus, it becomes very clear over time what kingdom we are ultimately serving, whose authority our lives are ultimately submitted to. Listen, that's why Jesus was not phased by a bunch of fanboys and fangirls. He didn't get a ood and awe by how big the crowds were. Jesus didn't care so much about packing the pew as he was drawing out what was going on in people's hearts. You see, Jesus viewed people really in two categories, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the children of God and the children of the devil, those who are children of light and those who remain in darkness, self-deceived and spiritually blind. In fact, Jesus would cut through like a hot knife through a stick of butter, the misunderstandings that many in his day, not much different from our own, when he defined who truly belonged to God's family. We read in Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So friends, do you belong to God's family? Would Jesus this morning call you his mother or brother or sisters? And if he does, well, how does Jesus' love for you and me redefine and reshape how we love one another? If you have a copy of God's Word, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 525. I would encourage you to have a Bible open. We won't have a lot of these scriptures on the screen because I want your face on the page since this is a slightly different format than I'm used to. 
Uh, normally, we work through books of the Bible consecutively, Lord willing, in a few weeks. Uh, Brother Jansen will begin the book of James. He'll probably be there forever because he doesn't preach all the time. And I'm going to start the book of Titus, and then we'll pick back up in the Gospel of Mark later this fall. But before we kicked off on those, I want to do a two-week mini topical series about care. Members caring for one another, that's this morning, and how members can care for their pastors next week. This morning, we're looking specifically at John chapter 13 that'll be like a a framework, a foundation of how we should understand the love of Christ. Christ's love towards us and Christ's love through us to others. And after we do that, I'm going to look a little bit at our church covenant, which you have a copy of or it will be on the screen later. And then I'll conclude our time with ways to strengthen our unity together for God's glory. Please follow with me as I read John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing You do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word. Well, Jesus, just hours before he would be betrayed into the hands of evil men and unjustly crucified on a Roman cross, he would sit down with his disciples. He would recline with them and share with them one last meal. And over this meal, Jesus would impart to them some of the most significant things he would ever teach these young disciples as they would learn how to bear witness to their Savior, to an unbelieving world. They would be instructed about the promise of the Holy Spirit and how the Father and the Son would send him as their helper and comforter to be with them forever. Because of God's Spirit coming down to dwell in them, they would no longer be orphans. They would not be alone. 
Jesus would teach them how the Spirit would also come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of truth who would come to bring to remembrance all that Jesus would teach them throughout his earthly ministry. And as the Spirit would guide them into all truth, they would be equipped for battle. They would have all the tools they would ever need to bear witness to King Jesus. These helpless, frightful, prideful, fickle disciples would be enabled by the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit that would be sent to work powerfully in their lives. One man, the God-man, would love a few who would go and turn and change the world. As you study this amazing and intimate dialogue between John 13 to 17, if you're wanting to do a Bible study on this discourse, I would read it all in one sitting. Might need an extra dosage of caffeine to make it through, but reading it all in one setting, it really helps you have the gravity and weight before Jesus is betrayed. That's just a little Bible study tip. But as you read these four chapters together, or chapters 13 to 17, we encounter some of the most profound teachings about the Father's love for the Son and Jesus' love for his Father. In other words, we are invited into the curtains of heaven have been opened up that we get to take a sneak peek of a love relationship that had never been interrupted in any way for all eternity. And yet, sandwiched in this beautiful love relationship between the Father and the Son, we also hear some of the most profound things about the Son's love for all those the Father would give him. Those that the Father would draw to the Son as a bride for King Jesus. Those whom the Son would possess, those who the Son said would possess the Spirit, his elect, his chosen people that one day he would raise to glory. Well, in John chapter 13 that we just read, Jesus modeled what true love is through his lowly and humble service of washing his disciples' feet. Kids, have your mom or dad ever seen you run in from a rainy day outside? And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think our favorite word in our house is stop. Stop. Just stop. Everybody stop. I want to be tracking dirt and mud in the house, right? We want to keep it clean. Well, here in this portion of John's gospel, Jesus isn't merely teaching us a new way to keep the house clean. He wasn't simply concerned about the dustiness from the Galilean roads that had fallen upon his disciples' feet. This menial task of a lowly servant was an object lesson of humble service that his disciples would be called to emulate in their lives. These men were quite shocked that their Messiah, who had said he came from heaven, was washing their feet, a task that they themselves thought they were better than to do. Friend, this is far greater than a president or a pastor 
or any king this earth could ever do to serve your feet and my feet. This is the king of glory came and washed their feet. A task of a menial, lowly, no-name servant. And in this moment, it was Jesus taking that task. Friends, don't you realize for a moment these disciples who were about to see their Savior crucified had that image in their mind stay with them the rest of their life? When pride would well up, when I want to revile in return, when I don't get my way and I feel entitled to something and I don't get it, those disciples felt that temptation just like you and me. When we're not noticed, when we're not thanked, when we're taken advantage of or mocked or persecuted, they would be reminded the king of glory washed our feet. He washed our feet. You see, Christ's humble service towards them was the example they were called to imitate and show to one another. But Jesus was also doing something else. He was pointing them to a greater act of humility that the foot washing was symbolizing. A greater act of love and service that would cleanse the filth not merely of their feet, but of their sin. There was more going on in what Jesus was teaching them that day as he stooped down to those dusty floors and gave himself in service to wash their filthy feet. This, this foot washing was symbolic of a deeper cleansing, a deeper washing these disciples needed and these disciples in here needed too. And that was the cleansing of their filth and sin before a holy God. You see, John 13 is a section in John's gospel that begins and ends with the love of Jesus Christ. It begins with the enduring love. It says he loved them to the end. And a sacrificial love that he would display to his disciples. But Jesus doesn't stop there. All of it was a parable, an, a parable in action. He was preaching to them a gospel as he was washing their feet. The chapter also ends with the sign or proof, the evidence of Christ's love living inside them. Look again at verses 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Friends, love is not the extra credit for radical Christians. Love is the distinguishing mark of real blood-bought Christians. Let me say that again. Love is not the extra credit for a few radical Christians, but love is the distinguishing mark of real blood-bought Christians. Brothers and sisters, think about that for a minute. This is Jesus leaving his fingerprints all over his people. You want to know what characterizes real Christians all over the globe? 
it's not just they carry a Bible. Because a lot of people carry their Bible if they don't love the God in that Bible. The one characteristic that far surpasses any other things that we can find faith in is a love for Jesus and a love for the people who belong to Jesus. A love for Jesus and a love for the people who belong to Jesus. So have you ever asked the question? If you haven't, I'm going to ask it for you. Why does the local church exist? What is the purpose of God calling his disciples to assemble together into gospel-preaching churches? Well, friends, in a real and tangible way, and with the eternal and spiritual realities at hand, it is God's way of showing off his wisdom and his love through the people he is saving. You see, the local church is the billboard that God puts on display before a watching world of what his love, imperfectly for sure, but what his love looks like, what his love sounds like to the people he is saving by his grace. Friends, that's what we see in the book of Acts. You read through the whole book of Acts, what we see is God's love being poured out through the gospel. The gospel goes forward in power, sinners are converted, and then they are baptized into the membership of a local church. And what happens to those people when God gives them a new love, a new heart for Jesus and his people? Well, they're baptized into the membership of a local church where they are known, shepherded, loved, held accountable, and equipped for humble service. That means the local church is the incubator for babies in the faith, where they can be protected and cared for and loved. It's also the local church is the gymnasium where God trains and equips us for the work of gospel ministry. Friends, that's what CCBC is. We're an incubator for baby Christians that don't know any better. They're learning how to sing for the first time God's praises. They're learning how to pray to God for the first time with God's people. They're learning how to hear God's word and apply it to their life. Friends, we welcome Christians of all maturity in this local church because that's what the local church is for, for each one of us who are following Jesus at different places in our life. But friends, it's also a gymnasium. If you've been watching the Olympics, every event I am becoming more humbled of my inability to do anything. These people are crazy. How often they have trained year after year after year after year for this one, two, or half a dozen events. But what you, can, you and I can say about these Olympics, uh, these Olympic athletes, is they didn't just kind of show up and do it. They've been equipped. They've been trained. And that, that's what the church here is for. Well, Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, the one you are gathered with today, was established as a New Testament gospel preaching congregation on September 20th, 2020, when 90 Christians committed to a statement of faith, really that basically is articles that say what we think the Bible teaches, and a church covenant, how the Bible calls us to live as Christians. So if you're new to church, or maybe you're new to a church that's utilizing a church covenant for the first time, I just want to remind you of what a church covenant is. A church covenant is a solemn agreement that is voluntarily entered into by a particular congregation of believers. It is a series of written pledges based on the Bible, which church members voluntarily make to God and to one another 
regarding their basic moral and spiritual commitments and the practice of their faith. In other words, a church covenant, it simply formalizes into a document form a summary of what Jesus meant in John 13, verses 34 and 35, what it would look like for his disciples to love one another. You know, if I walked around Fort Smith this afternoon and I began to scream at the top of my lungs, I love Julie, I love Julie, I love Julie. Well, you would probably look at me and go, well, good for you, brother. But which Julie am I referring to? There are a lot of Julies, I imagine, in the world, thousands of them. And I imagine I would be kind to them, pray for them. But the Julie I'm referring to as her husband is Julie Boylston. It's not just any Julie that I love in this way, but a particular woman named Julie, one I am in covenant with as her husband. In a similar way, if someone says, I love Jesus and I love Christians, Well, show me how exactly you love Jesus. Show me exactly how you love Jesus' people. Which group of Christians do you live out the commands of Scripture towards? To gather regularly with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. To submit to their elders or pastors as a spiritual authority under King Jesus. Which believers do you give your time, money, and resources to to build up that congregation? Which body of believers do you examine yourself with before you come to the Lord's Supper? You see, if we say, I love Jesus, or I love Christians, but we don't love a particular local church, our love lacks some teeth. It lacks some concrete evidence of your love for Jesus in the ways that Jesus commands us to love his people. So if you have a copy of your church covenant, for those who are members here, you already have this. Uh, you already know most of it by heart, I'm sure. If you're not a member here, you, you can look on the screen or you could have it with you. Uh, tonight, we will take the Lord's Supper together and we will recite that church covenant together. But for the purpose of what I'm doing here this morning with John 13 as kind of a framework for love for Jesus and love for his people, I wanted to look at, again, afresh, our church covenant through those lenses. And if you're here today and you don't belong to a local church and you are a Christian, I hope this church covenant this morning would challenge your heart to consider what local church, what body of believers do I love in this way? Listen as I read. Having, as we trust, been brought by sovereign grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him. And having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious strength, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will aim to glorify and enjoy the God of our salvation, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To him be glory forever. We will seek to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ by joyfully giving up ourselves in humble service to one another, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully reprove and encourage one another as occasion may require. We will highly esteem and love those who labor among us as elders because of their noble work by supporting them and praying for them while also welcoming and testing their instruction by the authority of the scriptures. We will diligently strive to know the word of God and apply it to our lives as we help one another grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will show perfect courtesy towards all people, speaking the truth and love to one another, avoiding quarrels, gossip, slander, and all other forms of foolish and corrupt talk. We will be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Unless providentially hindered, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, prioritizing our weekly gatherings for mutual edification and worship to God as we eagerly anticipate the day of Christ's return. We will not neglect to pray for ourselves and for the spiritual and temporal needs of others. We will work together to nurture any children under our care in the training and instruction of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by God's grace to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again for the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life by the power of the Holy Spirit as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the needs of the saints, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, if we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. These and all other gospel duties we humbly submit unto, promising and purposing to perform, not in our own strength, being conscious of our weaknesses, but in the power and strength of our blessed God, whose we are and whom we desire to serve. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Well, earlier in the service, Brother Greg read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the most beautiful and clearest ways that God has displayed his wisdom through the variety of spiritual gifts that he has given his people. And the unique image of the church that Paul gives us is that we're like a body. You know, Christ is the head, and we are made up of many members. All of us are essential to that body. Some are given uh, roles of leadership and speaking gifts, others roles of service and support, but they are all there. Listen, they are all there to complement one another. So this morning's message is super different than normal because I'm going to be speaking to you now as your pastor. So if you're not a member here, you might feel like you're in like a living room conversation. And don't worry, you can listen in. But I'm speaking from my heart to you. So what does that mean? Why have I spent all this time driving home the love of God to the love of our hearts for each other? 
So here's one of the biggest things. If you begin to think and entertain the ridiculous notion that you don't belong here, you're wrong. You're wrong. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you possess the power of the Holy Spirit, you have an essential part in contributing to the health of this local church. So if you think those things, if you're tempted to think those things, I want to stand on 1 Corinthians 12. We're made up as different members with different gifts to contribute to the body. Now you might say, well, why is that important to know, Brother Blake? Does that mean I need a title? Does that mean I need to take a class? No, it just simply means this. Before you think about roles of service, you need to understand God has wisely brought you to this membership. He has sovereignly brought you to this church for purposes that you and I probably can't even conceive of. You know how I know that? 1 Corinthians 12 says, the Lord assembles us into his body as he designed it. He desired it. He willed it. And so, friends, one of the things that I want to encourage each one of us is that God has so gifted each one of us and brought us with different degrees of maturity in the Christian faith so that we would have a mutual care for each other. Let me remind you again in verses 24 to 26 of what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 26. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, in preacher world, we call this landing the plane. Brother Blake, we've been up in there a long time. Land the plane, brother. I got the crackers. We're out of them. We're about to get home. I'm going to do this the simplest way I can. This is like discipleship 101, okay? Three questions I want us to answer, and we'll call it a day, okay? Three questions to help us understand what does it mean to care for the members of this body or care for the members that maybe you may join one day in this body. Question number one, what does it mean to care for the members of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? What does it mean to care for the members of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? Okay, simple answer. To care means to be intentionally interested in the lives of the members of CCBC. Intentionally interested, that's a loaded combo, okay? Because we can be easily disinterested in many things and just keep passing on. But to be intentionally interested means that you first have to know who the members are. So, I would encourage you to get out your membership directory this afternoon. Play a little game with yourself or with your family or friends and see if you can quote the last name of every member in this local church. See how many you can get. We've got 93 covenant members. 
see how many people you know first and last name. Now, if you start to get really good and you start throwing in like, hey, I'll pay for dinner if you can do this, you know, tell me where they live. Tell me if they have children. Tell me if they're, what their children's names are. The reason I'm doing this is to remind us that when you're in covenant with a particular body, the way you show care is first by being intentionally interested in the members of this local church. You got to know who they are. Know what their families are like, maybe where they live. And listen, use this as a prayer guide. Begin praying for people you don't even know. Have it next to your Bible in your quiet time. Every time you open your Bible, it's right there. And you just go down alphabetically. Me and Jansen do that every time we have staff meeting. We pray through about 15 names in the membership directory by name in accordance to whatever I'm preaching on or whatever he's preaching on. Praying for you. I want to encourage you to become more and more intentionally interested in the members of this local church. Number two, how do we show members of our local church that we care for them? How do we show members of this local church that we care for them? Okay, simple answer. We show care by taking personal initiative and moving towards others to pray for them, and pray with them, to patiently encourage and challenge them spiritually, and to learn of any practical needs they have that you can reasonably help meet. So tonight, Brother Allen is preaching from Romans 12, verses 9 to 13. And one of the verses in there commands God's people to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Brother Allen will help flesh out a little bit about what that might look at. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, how will I know the needs of the saints? I mean, is there like a message board, you know? Well, no, not necessarily. You can start by just getting to know members and finding out what those needs are. Uh, Having someone at your home. So as you know, we have Sunday evening services on the first and third Sunday every month, and the second and fourth and sometimes fifth Sunday we don't. Well, those are gaps designed. You can use it however you want, but it's also there to carve out some margin to get to know other members of this congregation. Also, we have a member care team led by Sheila Lax and Alan Williams, uh, those who are kind of hands and feet in recruiting other members to help those who are in urgent times of need, uh, whether that's being sick or into the hospital, uh, maybe death or dying or other areas of needs going on in someone's life, they're kind of a touch point. They're a place for our ministry. You can be finding out what's going on in some of the lives of our members. Uh, Lord willing, after September 20th, we'll have elders that will serve alongside me. And friends, one of the ways that elders best care for the flock is that we're among you. We know what some of those needs are. And as you communicate those needs and tell us how we can pray for you, uh, the elders will have a good pulse of what some of those needs are. Uh, We're also starting small groups this fall. Small groups are really just one way, one expression of how we'll facilitate fellowship in smaller settings. Uh, Women's Bible studies kick back up at the end of this month, Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, as 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 the ladies break out in smaller groups to hammer out the text and think more about application, they'll come together again. Those are other ways you can get to know the needs of the saints. Uh, Friends, the church covenant, did you notice? 
it doesn't spell out everything you can do. Like, it doesn't say, you know, shake Brother David's hand. You know, it doesn't say that. But it does talk about brotherly affection. It does talk about showing love. So the church covenant isn't a step-by-step process like a manual and putting together some furniture. It's more like windows and a door. They open up light into the house. You have to put your creative noggins on and think, how can I, with what God's given me, the time he's given me, the money he's given me, my, my heart, my talents, whatever, to flesh those things out. So just giving you those encouragements, the covenant opens the windows and the door, and then seeking out people that might know some of the needs in our body. Now, bottom line here, you can't care for people practically that you never see. So, you can't care for people you intentionally avoid or don't see. You can't practically greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to have lipstick all over our face after every service, uh, but that might be a bear hug for those who are comfortable with hugs, or a high five, or dap, or whatever. Uh, the idea of greeting one another face-to-face requires that we give attention to the people the Lord's brought here. And that's why gathering together is so important for the unity of a church and caring for each other's needs. I mean, again, we all have different schedules, right? Sickness, vacation, things come up, things happen. So please, when I say this, hear me as a sympathetic and understanding pastor. I'm not cracking the church attendance whip on this one. However, one of the ways we prioritize showing that we care for one another, that might mean we say no to some things to say yes to fellowship with other believers. That might mean saying no to some activities so that you can make time for the members of that congregation. You know, even just showing up to church on Sunday, even when you didn't feel like it, you could have skipped, or you could have moved vacation maybe a day later, doesn't matter, whatever the Lord has for you. It shows that you care for those members more than you even care for yourself. Parents and grandparents, uh, we prioritize gathering with the saints and caring for them because it'll have have a profound effect on our children as well. If our kids and grandkids see we're putting church as a top priority, it will probably make an impression on their life too. But the flip side is true as well, right? Jared Wilson once wrote an article that exposes top reasons why many kids leave the church once they leave their home. He says one of the reasons is sporadic church attendance that they saw in their parents. He writes this, if you treat church like an option, your children will too. If going to church is contingent only on nothing else going on, if sports or hobbies or vacations frequently take priority over gathering with God's people, how could this not over time imprint itself upon your kids. Friends, that's not a guilt-ridden quote. That's just a way to remind us of the power and influence we have on so many people that are watching us of whether or not how much we prioritize gathering 
with God's people. Question number three. Boiling this last question down as we close. Why should we care for the members of our local church? Why should we care for the members of our local church? Answer, we should care for the members of our local church because the love we share towards one another is an evangelistic witness to the unbelieving world. Turn your Bibles to John 17. John chapter 17, just a few chapters over from where we began. As I mentioned earlier, John 13 is the beginning of this intimate discourse between Jesus and his disciples. It began with Jesus washing their feet. It continued by his teaching about the Spirit and persecution. But then in John 17, he concludes this discourse in the upper room. And guess how he concludes it? He concludes it with a prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus in all of Scripture. And in this prayer of intercession, Jesus, he's our great high priest, reveals to us, listen, the evangelistic power that is found when disciples are unified around him. I want you to notice when we listen here, when it comes to things like love, truth, and unity. Follow with me. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Members of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, do we want to be an evangelistic church? A church concerned about the lostness of an unbelieving world? A church concerned for God's glory among the nations? If we do, it doesn't begin with giving money to the IMB. It doesn't begin by giving to things like Lottie Moon. It doesn't begin by passing out gospel tracts or doing door-to-door evangelism. Friends, all those things are wonderful. But they are not the most important when it comes to our evangelistic witness. According to Jesus' prayer, our evangelistic witness begins when the people of God are unified around God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Not a building, not a budget, not a Baptist denomination, and not our church traditions. You see, our concerns and unity for those things come second, third, and fourth. But our unity, first and foremost, is surrounded around the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. And that means if a church has a poor witness of unity at home, then we shouldn't export that poor witness to the nations. If our local mission is messed up, we need to focus on home base before we're talking about doing anything for King Jesus out there. You see, a divisive church will be a hindrance to evangelism and local missions. But a united church will be a launch pad for evangelism and missions. A divisive church will be filled with members who feel entitled for others to serve them. A united church will be filled with members who are reminded that foot washing is the work of a servant. You see, friends, our unity always begins around the truth of who God is. Our care for one another It only happens because we first experience the love of God for us. What did Jesus pray about what binds us together? Sanctify them in the truth. Your your word is truth. Friends, when the world sees, when unbelievers see, when guests see the love and care and unity amongst God's people, Jesus said, the world will know that the Father has sent me. Friends, that is the testimony of Scripture. 
that when we see the unity of God's people caring for one another, even amidst all our differences and personalities, it will be an unstoppable magnet of God's power. It will be the jaw-dropping and inexplainable supernatural community which compels sinners to say, I want to know Jesus because of what I see and hear through that church. You see, a church that cares for one another because of our unity in Christ that we share with one another, it is the recipe for a fruitful and thriving church. Ian Murray says this, the closer believers are to Christ, the closer they are to one another. From the day of Pentecost, unity is the mark of every thriving church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we praise you that you have loved us more than we will ever be loved. You have sent your son, Jesus Christ, who has loved his disciples and promised to love them to the end. And by your spirit, you enable us to love each other in like manner, to wash one another's feet, to serve one another in humble attitudes and humble heart postures. Lord, I pray that CCBC, even a sermon that is very easy to understand but very hard to demonstrate, we would be challenged and encouraged to be a church that cares for its members. Lord, I pray that we would become increasingly interested in the lives of one another, that we would draw near to one another, move towards one another, and find out what needs we might have. And Father, we do pray that you would cause the unity of our local church to be so supernatural that the unbelieving world, when they take watch and take notice of what you are doing in the lives of your people, Lord, that they would believe who you are and they would come to faith in Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.